This morning we're continuing to look through, study the, 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 the book of Esther in the Old Testament. If you want to turn there, it begins on page I think, 411 in the Bible's provided. It's, if you can find the Psalms and go backwards a little, you'll come to Esther. Today we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 3 and 4. As we begin, I just remind you to try to put yourself back in this world, the world of the Persian Empire that we described last week. And we tried to describe it in a certain way to, to see, obviously, the difference between the Persian Empire and our modern day, but also many of the similarities, the, the glorification of power, the abusive nature of the empire, and the, the focus on what's just externally attractive. It was a we described it as a place of, of great power, but also great danger, especially for those who are God's people. We saw the way that Esther, this beautiful young woman, was caught up into this worldly regime and, and taken, probably against her will, into the harem of King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes as he's also called, and made his wife. That's where we, we left her last week. She had kind of ascended to this place of preeminence. Uh, as a queen in the Persian Empire. We also were introduced to her cousin-slash-guardian Mordecai, this low-level Jewish, probably a bureaucrat or civil servant, somewhere around the kingdom of the citadel of Susa, who had just saved the king's life. So we we see God's people here both kind of uh, being preserved and in some ways advantaged, but yet we know that they're living in an evil place, a place of danger, a place where people use power capriciously to serve their own ends, a place where human life is relatively cheap. We see God's people living in an evil age, and we see them living in what we might even say is kind of a godless age, a a place where, where God's name is not mentioned. That seems to be one of the rhetorical um, devices of Esther is not to mention God's name, to ask, where is God? Is he here and is he active? And that way it makes it a, a book that modern people can relate to, right? That we don't see God given a lot of glory and attribution in our culture. And we might wonder, is he here? We might wonder, well, what can we learn from this about how to live in an evil age? What can God's people today learn from some of God's people here in Persia in the 5th century B.C. about how to live in an evil age? So I think we're going to see today two things, two general categories of things we need to live in an evil age. First, we need a calibrated conscience, and we need to be convicted by the truth. We need a calibrated conscience and to be convicted by the truth. But since we're in a story, we're going to try to immerse ourselves in a story this morning, in this book of Esther, and we'll try to see these points as we go along. So as I said, we left Esther last week as this woman who's gone from obscurity to this place of prominence in the Persian Empire. She's gone through this astounding reversal. But again, it's good to note the challenges that attend her position. To be a queen to King Ahasuerus is not like our conceptions of what a queen might have been even in like England. It's not at all what we might think of as a, a modern day marriage. We caught a glimpse of this in chapter 1 when Queen Vashti disagrees with her husband and she's deposed. Well, that's it. One, one disagreement and you're out of here. We see that this place is a precarious position for Esther. It would have been for any woman. But it's especially precarious for Esther because she's a Jewish woman who's hiding her Jewish identity. If you recall last week, that's one of the things she and Mordecai had agreed upon. She wouldn't tell anybody that she was Jewish when she took this role or went into the harem of the king. So that's where we find Esther, this place of being privileged but still precarious. She's highly favored. She's in the king's court. But it's not all roses yet still an advantageous place for a Jewish exile. The other person, again, we mentioned was Mordecai, this older cousin slash guardian of Esther. He also ended chapter 2 on a high note. If you remember, he had been hanging around the king's gate, which apparently is what he does. Maybe that was his job in some way. 
And he overhears this plot to lay hands, to attack the king. And he reports it up the chain to Esther, and she reports it to the king, and the bad guys are apprehended. And it says at the very end of chapter 2 that Mordecai's good deed was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So that's pretty good to have your name written down of this, this good deed you've done to the king. And, you know, if, if you were told at the end of chapter 2, you know, the next chapter is going to start with somebody getting a promotion, you might naturally think, well, I, I guess we know the guy, right? He just saved the king. He got his name recorded. Well, this is the kind of guy that any good king would want to have hanging around. But that's not what happens. So as we launch into chapter 1, we hear a promotion, but it's not Mordecai. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamaditha, and advanced him and set his throne above all officials who were with him. So instead of Mordecai becoming prime minister, this fellow Haman is promoted. He is exalted. His throne is set higher than all the others. Haman's background here is important. He's called Haman the Agagite. And this name Agag in the, in the Old Testament is associated with a certain people group known as the Amalekites. So if you trace kind of the thread backward, you go from here to 1 Samuel 15, where King Saul was commanded by God to go and destroy the Amalekites who were led by King Agag. He was supposed to destroy all of them, all the people, to, take, to kill all their livestock and to kill the king, but he didn't. This was the great, one of the great uh, turning points in Saul's life. It was the, really the fall of Saul right here. His failure to destroy King Agag and the, the spoils of war is why God took away the kingdom from him because of his disobedience with Agag and the Amalekites. If you want to understand why that's such a big deal, you have to go all the way back to just after the Passover. So our brother Jason read earlier for, from us about the Passover in Exodus 12. So you think about Passover, you got, they, they leave the land, they're on the run, they're trapped in the Red Sea, they get across the Red Sea in chapter 14, in chapter 15, there's a song uh, where they sing God's praises. Well, one of the first things that they do is they get attacked by the Amalekites. So this is Exodus chapter 17. You can go read this in verses 18 through 16. What's most important for our story in Esther is that this first attack God says at the outset, is only the beginning of a long history of animosity between Israel and God's people. I'm guessing if I would have come in today and asked you who was kind of public enemy number one of God's people, we might have had, well, Babylon or Egypt, but listen to Exodus 17, 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called, it the name, called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So the Lord is putting his marker down. I'm at war with these people. It's on. And when you read the, the account of Saul in 1 Samuel 15, they cite this very idea that because of what the Amalekites had done to Israel coming out of Egypt, this is why Saul is given the order to go and destroy him. So when Haman comes on the scene in Esther chapter 3 and he's called an Agagite, he comes with a, a lot of biblical baggage attached to him. He's a member of this enemy tribe against which the Lord has declared perpetual war. He's the descendant, or at least relative, of Agag, the stumbling block of King Saul. Now, bringing Saul into the picture is relevant because Mordecai was from the same family and tribe as King Saul. So back in chapter 2, verse 5, when we were introduced to Mordecai, he was introduced as a descendant of Kish and a Benjaminite. This is what we call a telescoped genealogy. Like most of, the, most of the steps are missing in the genealogy, but the author makes sure to include the important ones that link Mordecai to King Saul of the tribe of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin. So as we read chapter 3 of Esther, we're not reading about these 
two lowly civil servants, you know, duking it out in the king's court. No, we're reading about Haman the Amalekite and Mordecai the Israelite. Even more specifically, we're reading about Haman the son of Agag and Mordecai the son of Benjamin, the relative of Saul. Their relationship is loaded with explosive baggage. Right, we've got the match and the gasoline here when Haman enters the picture. Let's go ahead and read the rest of chapter 3 and see how this explosion sets off. We'll go ahead and read chapter 3, verse 1 again. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamaditha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hold the, the lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they shall be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the key event that touches off this whole story, this whole calamity of Esther. Mordecai refused to bow, and Haman's response is this plot to destroy all the Jews of the Persian Empire. This would have included the Jews who've already returned to Israel. As we read this, we can't help but wonder, why did Mordecai refuse? Why was he so stubborn in refusing to bow to Haman? The only reason that the text offers us, we find in verse 5, which is kind of related secondhand, for he had told them, that is the king's servants, that he was a Jew. That was why. He was a Jew, so he couldn't bow. So Mordecai is citing Jewishness as his reason. But when you, if you were to pour over God's law and say, well, where is bowing prohibited, you wouldn't find it. In Exodus, Joseph's brothers, when they go to Egypt and they're seeking grain, they bow down to Joseph. They don't know he's Joseph. They're thinking he's just a, an a, Egyptian official who's got charge of the grain. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, just after David secretly takes a bit of Saul's uh, robe, he cuts off, 
Saul leaves the cave, and David pursues him and says, Hey, Saul, uh, I, have, I have your robe. I could have killed you, but I didn't. But he, he starts by bowing down and paying homage to Saul, this king that wanted to kill him. So there's nothing against bowing in Jewish law. Why would Jewishness keep Mordecai from bowing? It's possible he was just proudly, foolishly stubborn. The text emphasizes the king's servants day after day spoke to Mordecai about this issue, right? He had plenty of opportunities to change his mind and to see the error of his ways and to bow. And it seems that the whole nation then is condemned because of his act. Was he too proud to heed these warnings? There are some who interpret it that way. So there's a well-respected Old Testament scholar named Bruce Waltke. He says that this is just pride on Mordecai's part. If we want to do justice to Mordecai, I think we need to at least entertain the idea that his refusal to bow was a matter of conscience. So even if God's law didn't prohibit bowing, Mordecai may have sincerely judged that bowing to this specific official, Haman the Agagite, would be an act of unfaithful compromise. Listen to what another well-respected scholar says. This is a guy named Gordon McConville. He says, Mordecai perceived obeisance, which just means bowing, to Haman to be impossible in view of a higher loyalty. He was thus in the same position that Daniel was in when an embargo was laid upon prayer to God. Daniel must yet pray, and Mordecai must be faithful to the God of his fathers and the present generation of his people. I think seeing Mordecai here in chapter 3 as, as sincerely acting according to conscience is the best way to understand him in the whole of the book of Esther. He may have pride. He may have just been an especially awkward guy who always stuck out like a sore thumb. But he seems to be acting sincerely here upon what he thinks is right. What he thinks is called upon him as a Jewish guy living in an evil world. And perhaps he is aware of all this background thinking, you know, this guy is a descendant of our sworn enemies and I cannot bow to him in good conscience. This leads us, I think, to see for ourselves we need a calibrated conscience if we're going to live in an evil age. When we describe Mordecai as being motivated by a conscience that prohibited from bowing, we recognize it would have been sinful for him to go against that conscience, right? So Paul teaches us this in Romans chapter 14. He's addressing this debate among Christians about whether they could eat certain foods or not. Some felt they had the freedom to eat, while some felt they did not have the freedom to eat. For those who have doubts about eating, who feel like this is not right for me, he says this in chapter 14, verse 23 of Romans, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if Mordecai believed that bowing was sinful, it would have been sinful for him to violate his conscience and bow. He would have been dishonoring God by not doing what he believed was right. But this is not all we can say about conscience. I said, I think this lesson for us is that we need a calibrated conscience. It's fair to ask, was Mordecai's conscience properly formed? We've already said there's no prohibition that we can find against bowing, so there must be other factors at play. His vision could have been clouded by something else. Again, the text doesn't tell us which aspect of his Jewishness Mordecai was appealing to. We only know that he stuck to his guns after repeated questioning from the king's servants. Perhaps he did inherit some tradition of Judaism that said all bowing to foreign leaders is sinful. Or maybe he does have a, a sense of this legacy of animosity between he and the Agagites. It's at least possible, though, that Mordecai's conscience was formed in an unbiblical way. The late teacher and theologian R.C. Sproul said that Christian consciences are often manipulated. So legalistic teachers bind Christian consciences to say you, you can't do something when the Bible has no prohibition against it. On the flip side, there are antinomian, this, this means anti-law, teachers that, that don't really want you to consider your, your actions too carefully. It's no big deal. Don't, don't give it too much thought, they would say. This would, this would lead to a kind of license, 
a conscience that's not properly aware of those things that might lead you astray. So we realize our consciences can be malformed, poorly formed, in both directions. There's a professor in Minneapolis named Andrew Nacelli, who is a New Testament scholar, but he and a co-writer wrote a book about the conscience. And he notes the way that scriptures speak of those with weak consciences about a particular issue and those with strong consciousness. So he says we can be kind of on a spectrum about a particular thing. Maybe it's, it's drinking or, or eating a certain food. He says moving from weak to strong on a particular issue requires that you calibrate your conscience, just like you might calibrate a clock or a scale that is a bit off. You may need to align your conscience with the standard of God's word so that it functions accurately. To calibrate your conscience then is not to sin against it, but to reform it according to God's word, to what is true. Nicelli cites Peter's example in Acts 10 when he had a vision of these foods being dropped down on the tablecloth and God tells him to eat. And Peter's initial response is, I, I can't eat those things because they're unclean. But then this, Christ tells him, kill and eat. You need to eat. These things are now clean. Don't call unclean what I've called clean. Peter needed to have his conscience reformed according to God's word, according to Christ's explicit command in this case. As Christians living in an evil age, we're going to face many challenging questions. What to do here, what to do there. For many of these questions, there will be no clear biblical command from Scripture about what to do. You know, should you go to that non-Christian friend's wedding? You know, should you go to this party where this is going to happen? So Scripture doesn't tell us those specific answers, but it also doesn't leave us without help. We can pursue a conscience formed by God's word by becoming good Bible readers and by growing in theological reasoning. And we should seek to do this, to train our consciences. We should first read the Bible well. Learn to read the Bible with Christ at the center. One way you might have your conscience improperly formed by bad readings of Scripture is if you read an Old Testament passage that was intended for the nation of Israel, and you don't see how it's fulfilled through Christ. And you apply it directly to yourself. You know, again, you might think of, of some of the food laws Right? Have you ever met a Christian who says they should basically keep kosher? Um, this is the biblical way of eating. Uh, and they, they may even feel their conscience bound that they couldn't do otherwise. Well, I think we're talking to a Christian whose conscience has been improperly formed by Scripture. As we learn to read the Bible well, with good hermeneutics, good biblical theology, we'll learn to more accurately apply the Scriptures to ourselves. So we need to learn to read the Bible well, to have our consciences formed well by Scripture. Another example, though, is we need to, or another thing we need to do is learn to read the Bible theologically. This may sound like a scary thing. I don't, again, don't mean you have to all go to seminary. But we can see that bad theological readings of the Bible lead to bad practices. Here's a bad reading of the Bible. They'll say that the Bible doesn't actually teach against homosexuality. Rather, there's just certain select clobber passages that some fundamentalists use, like Leviticus 20.13. They'll say, that's just an old covenant irrelevancy. That was just for Israel way back then. Jesus never really talked about homosexuality, they'll say. And they'll say, you know, conservative Christians, they're making a big deal about something the Bible is silent about. In a sense, they're kind of using the argument I just made. They're saying, your conscience has been improperly formed by bad readings of the Bible. Well, here's what I think will help, a better theological reading of the Bible. Because when we read the Bible theologically, we see there's a theological grounding in the, the male-female relationship that begins in Genesis, right? You might say Genesis 1 through 3 doesn't say anything about homosexuality, right? But it does speak about creation and God making one man and one woman and ordaining marriage. We're reading the Bible more theologically there. And we're seeing that when we, we try to synthesize all the Bible presents about sexual relationships, it's, it's clear, it's unambiguous that, that marriage is to be one man and one woman and that sex is supposed to happen within that committed context. And we see that when we read teaching from Jesus about the Greek word porneia or sexual immorality, that homosexuality is included in what Jesus is saying. 
So we, we need to learn to read the Bible theologically, to understand what it says, and to understand the, the good and necessary consequences that flow from what it says. This is something that we should do as individuals, and we should do as a church. It's when we read the Bible well, as interpreted through the lens of Christ, and when we read the Bible theologically, that we're better able to have our consciences rightly calibrated. We need calibrated consciences to live in this evil age. And this is all the more important when we see how costly it can be to follow your conscience. I mean, doesn't this show us here? Mordecai's uh, following his conscience had great costs. His stand caused Haman to pursue this disproportional and irrational course of seeing all the Jews killed. Now, I don't think the lesson to draw here is uh, be careful following your conscience because you might call it a genocide. Like that, that's not the, the way to read Esther. But we do see that, that some challenges arise from Mordecai's stand, don't they? Notice specifically the way that Haman slanders God's people in verse 8 of chapter 3. Look, notice all the, the half-truths and lies here. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not, the king's, not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Okay, so Haman begins by saying there's this certain people. Notice he's careful not to name them. Perhaps if he had named them, Ahasuerus would have thought, well, no, I, I don't want to kill those guys. But he doesn't name them. He just describes them as having different laws, following different laws. Well, that sounds pretty sinister, right? I mean, it you know, sounds like some of the way some people talked about John F. Kennedy's presidential candidate, candidacy, that he's going to be taking orders from the Vatican, right? He's got different laws, right? Um, this is scary. Here's this group of people in your nation with different laws, and they don't keep the king's laws. It's interesting that when Mordecai is being challenged by the king's servants, they ask him, why do you transgress the king's command? So ostensibly, Mordecai is exhibit A, right? He, he's a Jew who doesn't keep the king's laws. But realistically, is, is this really the problem that King Ahasuerus has? That they have these different laws? Are they, are they this great subversive group within his kingdom? And, and, and then he goes on to say that, that these people who have these different laws, that it's, it's no benefit to you, King Ahasuerus, to keep them in your kingdom. There's no benefit to you to tolerate them. Uh, just rewind in your head, right, a few, a few verses to the end of chapter 2. Did, did Ahasuerus reap any benefit from these Jews in his kingdom? Well, he found a queen that way, right, even if he doesn't know it. And Mordecai the Jew is the one who saves his life. So uh, Haman's just outright lying about the nature of these people and about the benefit they may or may not have to the king. This is slander. Again, we, we don't live in a world where we're worried about, you know, touching off a genocide, but we do live in a world where a stand for conscience might get you slandered, won't it? You will, you will be called a bigot, perhaps. You will be said to, to be someone who's damaging children by your old-fashioned beliefs and trying to propagate them. Following conscience is costly, isn't it? If we are going to have consciences calibrated by God's word, we must count the cost. We must be prepared to be slandered, to have our, our most well-crafted statements be taken out of context and used to lead to absurdities. There's no rationale, again, to Haman's response, right? Maybe we, we would think it's rational in a, in a brutal society like this for Haman to have Mordecai executed. I mean, drastic, but more understandable. But where Haman goes doesn't make any sense. Right? I think we often struggle with that. The people are persecuting me. They're saying things about me that, that don't make any sense. They're not true. Well, that's par for the course. Following our conscience in an evil age will often reap irrational consequences. So we need to see that following conscience is costly. Before we move off conscience, we should notice that we need grace with each other's consciences. Can you imagine some of the other Jews in Mordecai's community, and they're thinking, Mordecai, what in the world are you thinking? Look what you've done, you know? They're, they're mad at this brother for following his conscience. And you can imagine Mordecai saying, look at you, compromisers, 
How are you bowing down to this guy? What are you thinking? How could you, how could you not see it my way? Why, why aren't your consciences formed the way mine are? We have to acknowledge we live in a confusing world, right? You, your company may have you know, DEI training next week where you're going to be having to, to go through a, a list of you know, kind of rituals of the modern age of, of giving your pronouns and recognizing how you also are an oppressor and all of these things. What if you stand up and say, I'm not doing it. As a matter of conscience, I think it's wrong. And, and what if you get fired? But we have another brother in the church who just last week, he went through the DEI thing at his work, and he didn't say much, and he's okay. And his conscience didn't prohibit him from going through it. How do those two brothers commune at this table? Do they cast each other aside and say, you're a compromiser, or you're an idiot and stubborn? You know, do, are we willing to support those who are following their consciences and get fired from their jobs? This is not to say there, there's, there's no wisdom we can learn and share together. By God's grace, we, we can be formed into agreement on many things. But, but there may be things where we just one, one person's more comfortable with something than the other. We need grace with each other's consciences. So we need to have our consciences properly calibrated. We need to count the cost of obeying our consciences. And we need to show grace with one another when persecution comes or when we see a brother who's doing things differently than we are. When we think about the call to count the cost, we see many examples in Scripture of churches and Christians that followed Christ faithfully in the midst of persecution. The church mentioned in the book of Hebrews seems to have counted the cost of following Christ. Hebrews 10, 32, and 33 says that some of these Christians were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction Some lost their possessions, some were thrown in jail, some suffered by being associated with those so treated. But the book, the letter says they were able to bear these hard things with joy. He says this, the writer says this in Hebrews 10.34, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence which is a great reward. They were able to bear their suffering with joy since they knew they had a better possession. They knew. They were convicted of something that was true, of belonging to Jesus, their great high priest. And that belonging to Jesus was greater, a greater reward than the good things they lost because of their faith. They lost good standing, They lost freedom. They lost their stuff. All of those things, they're willing to say, are not as worthy as following Jesus. They knew, they had conviction about the truth of the goodness of the gospel. This is the second thing we need to live in an evil age. We need to be convicted of the truth. This is the only way, really, to endure in an evil age. But what if you don't have it? What if you don't have these convictions and the evil comes upon you? I think that's the story that chapter 4 tells us about Esther. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry, He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. The mourning of Mordecai provides the setting of this chapter. He's responding to Haman's edict that's gone out. This isn't over-the-top melodrama from Mordecai. This is a proper response to this great evil. In case you missed it, as we read chapter 3, the decree was made in the first month of the year. It was actually made on the eve of the Jewish Passover. That's when it was sent out, or written and sent out. But it's not to be carried out until the end of the year. So decree made in month one, the, the, the atrocity is supposed to be executed 
on your, in month 12. So you have this 10 or 11 month span of time where the Jews are just waiting for, them, for their slaughter to arrive. And so that's, this is the context of Mordecai's lament and the, the Jews' lament. This whole span of time is a time of great mourning and lament for the Jews. But when we meet Esther in chapter 4, the thing that most stands out about her is that she's ignorant of what's happened. Right? He says that Mordecai was grieving. He's there in Esther's locale. He's right outside the king's gate in Susa. But Jews across the empire are mourning. We read at the end of chapter 3 that the whole city was confused by what Haman has done. There's, some, there's something so obviously wrong about this that even your rank-and-file citizen of Susa is like, this is, this is off, this is weird. But Esther is clueless. Her solution is to send Mordecai some proper clothes to wear and maybe to silence him. Shut up, Mordecai, you're, you're freaking me out, you know? Now, to be fair, she may have been doing this so that he could come in and tell her what's wrong because he couldn't come in as long as he's wearing the sackcloth and ashes. But whatever the case, it's clear that she's ignorant of the edict. It'll be more clear as we read. And so it makes us wonder, is Esther, has she been shielded from this by King Ahasuerus somehow? Seems hard to, hard to say that when the whole city knows. Does she have a policy? This is how she's going to survive in this evil place. She's just going to keep her head in the sand. She's not going to know about the bad things that go on in the king's reign. We don't really know. All that we know is at the beginning of this chapter, she's ignorant of what every other Jew and every other citizen knows about, that this slaughter is coming. In the next few verses, Esther and Mordecai begin this conversation, but it's a conversation that has to take place through an intermediary, this eunuch named Hathak. So he's one of the king's servants, who's he's appointed to be one of Esther's servants. Now this fact is itself sort of amazing when you think about it. This is a, a matter of great sensitivity, right? Esther's ethnicity to this point, as far as we know, has been concealed, and now they're going to be using one of the king's servants as the carrier of messages that are all about Esther's Jewish identity. So it doesn't seem like it can remain a secret much longer after uh, this going back and forth between Hathak. And, and at the end of the chapter, there's more than Hathak seem to be engaged. There's a they that said that carries these messages back and forth. Uh, so this secret is out. But in this conversation, Mordecai informs her of what's happened, and he, he tells her what to do. So let's read verses 5 through 11. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and he ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square in, in, of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and, commanded her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her, her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. To be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So at this point, Esther is no longer ignorant, but she's clearly afraid. We get a glimpse of the terror and the weirdness of being King Ahasuerus' wife. This is no ordinary marriage, no marriage of equals. She can't even go into the king's inner chamber without an invitation. And at this point, she says, it's been 30 days since I've seen him. Here's another background on this from the scholar Gordon McConville. He says that within the Persian authority structure, they, they sort of use this inaccessibility of the king as a, as a way to preserve his authority. So no one could see his face. So there were only these seven princes mentioned in the early chapters who had that privilege. I guess they could come in and talk to him whenever they want, but for everybody else, they couldn't. And McConville says, infringement of the etiquette by which the king's face was veiled from all others was tantamount to an act of treason. And to enforce the ban upon the overbold, a squad of men 
armed with axes, stood about the throne, ready to hack them down, unless the king in his mercy extended the golden scepter to restrain them. So you have to walk the gauntlet of men with axes, ready to hack you down if you want to be overbold. So Mordecai was commanding Esther to do something, and Esther saying, there's no way, I can't do this. It's too dangerous. And it's notable that Mordecai issues this command to Esther. He tells her what to do. And earlier, he had commanded her not to reveal her Jewish identity. Now, this was kind of the, the parent-daughter relationship that they had, that Mordecai gave the instructions and Esther followed them obediently. Here he commands her to do this thing, to go to the king, to beg his favor, to plead with him on behalf of the people. I don't think we're meant to see this as an unhealthy relationship. I think this is probably a way a lot, a lot of ancient parent-child relationships went. Mordecai has a clear sense of what needs to be done, and his, his daughter is in a place to do it, so he tells her to do it. Later we'll see that he believes that Esther has been put in this very place for this purpose. He believes that there's something that can be done and should be done. But the question is, does Esther agree with him? Does she believe that there's something that can be done and should be done? Back in chapter 3, we were told that Haman decided on the date of destruction of the Jews by casting lots that are called pur, P-U-R. These casting of lots was a religious act. So by, by casting lots and landing on a date, it was thought that date to be fortuitous. If we do it then, good things will happen. The, the gods or fate has ordained this day, and for them it was I think the 13th or 14th of December. So for Haman and the king's court, this day is fixed. It's codified in the king's edict. It's sealed with the king's signet ring. This is when it's supposed to happen. The gods have smiled on the date. It's here. Well, is there any hope of overturning this date? I mean, a good Persian would say, absolutely not. This is the fortuitous date. It's been settled. Perhaps Esther is bought into this. This is pointless. There's no hope. This is fate. Our, our fates have been sealed, you know, metaphorically and by the king's own ring. What use is there for me to die trying to get this overturned? That's where Esther stands. Mordecai has a different view, but Esther is still, I think maybe we might say, operating with a Persian worldview. She's just a pawn. She's a pawn in Ashuharis' harem. She's a pawn in the Persian Empire. And maybe we might say, well, is she just a pawn of Mordecai? Should she just do what, she, what he says regardless? What does Esther really think? Well, they go back and forth. Verse 12 says, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. So now we have more than just Hathek involved. And then Mordecai responds in verse 13 and told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, the relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will fast also as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him. I think we see in this final scene, Esther discovers her convictions. And to see what she discovered, I think we can look at Mordecai's arguments. First, Mordecai makes it clear this is a life or death struggle. This is a good and evil thing. And everyone falls on one side of it or the other, including you, Esther. Now, whether or not she actually imagined that she could somehow escape or not, this is still a crucial point. Mordecai is putting it to her. There is, a, there is no alliance that you can make between the ways of Haman and the ways of God. There's no alliance between the ways of Persia and the ways of God. In New Testament terms, we would say you can't be friends of the world and God. 
Right? That's what James says in James 4, 4. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's what Mordecai is saying to Esther. You can't be friends with the world and be friends with God. He says, or maybe using what we looked at in Galatians chapter 5, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Whether you're talking about it in, internally in the heart of one person or you're talking about it on this cosmic scale, there is no friendship between the world and God. Esther, I think, comes to see this. She's convicted about these truths. She's convicted that you must pledge your allegiance to one or the other. Whereas before she was maybe holding out some hope, there was some other way to navigate this, this conundrum she was in. Now she knows there is no third way. I must trust in God. I must trust in, in what he's saying is good because it's against what Haman and the king have said is good. It might be helpful to ask, where do you stand on this question? When you're presented with, with problems, are, are you trying to find some middle way of, of, of not offending the world and somehow holding on to your Christian convictions? Sometimes there can be wisdom in that, of trying to live what we might call a winsome life, you know, to not be unnecessarily offensive, right? We understand the gospel itself is offensive, so we don't go out of our way to be offensive. But there's an ultimate sense in which we must be convicted of this truth. In an evil age, we cannot be friends of the world and worship God. We need to be convicted about this truth. Another truth that Esther seems to be convicted by is the idea that deliverance will come. So in verse 14, Mordecai says, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai is convinced that there is going to be deliverance. And this goes back to this idea of the Purim again, right? The, the lots had been cast. The date had been set. Fate had decided this is when the Jews will be annihilated. But Mordecai believes there's hope. There is hope that our God is not underneath the Persian view of fate. He's not submissive to what the lots have said. Our God is over all things. Our God can save. And I mean, perhaps he's thinking, look, this is Passover. Do you remember what happened on Passover so many years ago? God miraculously saved us through the blood of the Lamb. Deliverance will come. And when you read his words to Esther, there's almost like a veiled threat here. Like, you're going to get it if you don't, you don't get on board. And maybe this is a prophecy, or maybe he's just saying this is what's likely to happen. But he is confident that relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. We might even wonder, how, what promises of God is he looking to? Right? I mean, he's living here in Persia. How, how can he know this will happen? But if he maybe is a, a reader of the prophets, he knows that a, a new exodus was promised in, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, that God would one day restore his people and, and nations would come like streams in the desert back to God's holy place. And there would be this great restoration yet again. Perhaps he's a good reader of the prophets. But whatever the case, Mordecai has this hope and clearly, Esther is convinced. Esther becomes convicted that he's right. Relief and deliverance will come somehow, even if it costs me my life, is her final resolve, right? Her resolve is based on these convictions. If I perish, I perish. One of the wonderful blessings of Esther, in the, the character in this book, is that here in chapter 4, we see this amazing change, right? She goes from ignorance, whatever the reason, to, to just being afraid, right? To finally coming to, to full resolve, conviction about what God says is true. Deliverance will come. I must choose whom I will serve. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to live in an evil age, we need conviction about the truth. Uh, that's one reason that we seek to be a, a theologically well-grounded church. These, these truths that we confess about God's providence today, this is what grounds us in the face of an evil age, that our God rules, 
that he sustains us, that he's with us. But most of all, we confess the truth of God's deliverance in Christ Jesus. I mean, can you imagine a, a better tagline for the Old Testament? Relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place, a place nobody could imagine, from Nazareth of Galilee, right? Relief and the Jews will arise, and it does arise. It first arises in this, this little picture of Esther, who's willing to risk her life to save her people, but it arises most clearly in Christ, who gave his life to save us. We are founded upon this truth that God's deliverance has risen in Jesus, the one who came and was born and took on flesh to die in our place for our forgiveness and then rose on the third day. Relief and deliverance has come through Christ and we are built on this conviction. There's no other way to live in an evil age without this conviction. And that's what motivated those Hebrews in the the letter to the Hebrews. They were convicted that, that they had something greater than what the world could offer. They had a high priest. They had a reward. Brothers and sisters, that is our conviction too. The way we go forward in this life is built upon these convictions of God's truth. And so the question comes down to us like it did to Esther. Do you believe this? Or are you you trapped in the world's view of itself? Do you you find yourself trying to to make friends with the world? Or will you come to the point in saying there, there is no friendship in the world? There is only hope for me in Christ. Are you willing to stand and stand firm with resolve on the conviction that Christ Jesus gave himself for you, that he suffered and died in your place? This is the only place to stand. And without this conviction, we won't stand in an evil age. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you and adore you You are our sovereign God, but this doesn't mean that you are remote and distant, uh, some great puppet master or robot designer. You are the God who has come near to us in Christ, in the Son of God. And as we know you as Father, Son, and Spirit, we know a God of love, the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. These are ours. You have worked your sovereign will before the foundation of the earth, to make us your own. Father, we pray that you would grant us consciences that are clean because of Christ taking away our sin and consciences that are formed according to your word and your truth. And we pray that you would grant us conviction to stand upon the work of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.